You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, January 17, 2021 at Redemption Held Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Start off our time this morning with a bit of a question for you to reflect on for a moment. The question goes like this. Have you ever had one of those moments in life when maybe fear was so overwhelming? Maybe it was anger or envy or when you were totally and irrationally overcome by one of these things. Have you ever had one of those moments? If you're honest with yourself and you can think back to them, it, it's kind of a high to be so angry, to be so overcome. The, the emotion carries with it a, a sense of a high, but when the high wears off and you look around at the actions you took and the words maybe that you spoke, maybe you wondered to yourself, was there no one around me who cared enough about me to actually step in and stop me? You ever had one of those moments? I have this feeling that when a lot of us look back on the last eight months of our lives, we're going to reread things that we maybe wrote online. Maybe we said to another friend or person over coffee or over a meal. Maybe even some of us will look back at actions we took in a particular moment, and we're going to say to ourselves, why didn't someone stop me? There are probably 20-somethings right now who are awaiting federal charges in this country for throwing Molotov cocktails in police cars who might be wondering that very thing. There are men and women being rolled up all week from actions taken just two weeks ago at the Capitol who may be facing charges of sedition, who might be wondering the same thing. Have you ever had one of those moments, and it doesn't have to be so grand and so great as those, but one of those moments where you look back and wonder, did anyone not care enough to just step in and stop me? I mean, it could be any number of things, and if you live long enough, you'll probably have a list of moments like that, and Lord willing, it'll be a short list, but a list nonetheless. Did anyone try to help me see the consequences of what laid ahead of this attitude or what laid ahead of this decision or what laid ahead of these actions? And this morning, rather than exploring the the myriad of reasons why you and I in any given moment may not step in and try to help someone we love, instead of exploring the infinite number of reasons why fear takes over our hearts in those moments and we don't step in. This morning, I I want us to consider 1 Samuel chapter 25, and I want us to consider the good gift of grace that God gives us when he uses people in our lives at different times to keep us from acting upon temptation to sin. 1 Samuel chapter 25 is part of a literary unit made up of chapters 24 and 25 and 26. 
So the context to understanding 25 is having to understand 24 and 26. And the literary unit that these chapters comprise tell an ongoing story. Each chapter presents a distinct temptation to sin, a distinct temptation in the life of David to deliver retribution, so to speak, for having been wronged and how he then responds. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel, so let me remind you, in chapter 24, you might remember that David's conscience restrained him from taking Saul's life in a cave when Saul was the most vulnerable and all alone. You might remember the story. If not, ask your kids. They'll remember the story. Even as David's men encouraged him to take Saul's life, we read in chapter 24 how how David tore into his men for that attitude. His conscience so strong in his life that David felt tremendous sorrow for the action he did take, which was just cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. And that chapter ended with Saul tearfully acknowledging David's righteousness and David's mercy and even alluding to the fact that David would be the future king. And then in chapter 26, which we have not done, and we're only going to spend this brief review in it this week because I want to focus on 25. If you've got your Bibles, you can see and you can read this week. In chapter 26 and verse 1, word again came to Saul about where David was, and Saul goes out after him to find him. And, and then you'll read this in, in chapter 26. Let me read it to you here in verse, in verse 7. David and his men realized where Saul is, and so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there they saw Saul sleeping within the encampment, and with his spear struck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army laying around him. And so there's David is again, finding Saul vulnerable. This time he's asleep, and there's that spear right next to his head, and there's the head of his security right next to him sleeping, and there's David and his right-hand man standing over Saul. And in verse 8, you can read, David's men encourage him. You can kill him. In fact, verse 8, Abishai says, let me put the spear through him. Let me do it. But David, he again restrains his men. In verse 9, he says, do not destroy him. And afterward, in verse 13, David will leave the encampment. He'll climb to a high spot and he'll begin to preach. In verse 14, as he begins to preach, he calls out Abner, Saul's head of security. He says, woe to you, Abner. You failed to protect the Lord's anointed. Hey, Abner, where's Saul's spear? Where's that jar of water that was right by his head? It's right here. And as David calls out Abner, Saul hears David's voice and he recognizes it. And Saul comes back out. And David, again, like he did in chapter 24, he speaks to Saul. Why have you pursued me? What have I done? What sin and what blood is there on my hands? Saul, don't you see what I could have done? Look, here's your spear. And then in verse 21, if you take some time to read it this week, you'll see once again that Saul relents. And he confesses, I've sinned. I've I've acted foolishly. And then in verse 25 of chapter 26, Saul will even go as far as to say, blessed be you, David, again, affirming David's righteousness, his mercy. 
and the future and the role that God has prepared for David. But in between chapter 24 and chapter 26 lies chapter 25. In 24 and 26, God restrained David by the grace of his conscience, and David in turn restrained his men from acting against the Lord's anointed. But in chapter 25, we're going to see another temptation to deliver retribution and another gracious restraint. But it's going to be different than you'd expect. It's a great story. It's a long story. So let's jump into it right away. Verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's it. I mean, that's it for Samuel. I mean, this is the man the book is named after. It's a man the rest of the biblical story will tell us had unparalleled influence in the shape and the direction of Israel's history up to this point. And this is it. Samuel died. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house. You have to wonder, did Saul the king mourn Samuel? Samuel was the one who called him out after all. Did David join the assembly in mourning Samuel? We don't actually know. We don't get those details But the terse nature of the record in verse 1 is a reminder that even the best of men are just men. God's story continues on. The first lesson, and often the hardest lesson, but the first lesson we get even in this story is that the good guys, even the best of them, they don't last forever. They are not the sum end of God's story. God's story goes on. And as this story goes on in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that even the best of men that are with us, they, they aren't perfect. The story picks up, David rose and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So stop right here. We're we're getting a picture. The, The writer is setting up the story. And he starts setting up the story by giving us some very clear description of some of the characters. Nabal, his name literally means fool. And the writer describes him by describing his implied self worth. His implied self-worth, the writer tells us, has come from the vastness of his net worth. This is what we're seeing. And he was harsh. And the word that we translate there for harsh is a word that means belligerent. And he was badly behaved. That word is often used or translated with a meaning of being dishonest in your dealings. Nabal, the fool was rich and foolish, belligerent and dishonest in his work. But he was married to a gem. Her name was Abigail. Her name literally means my divine father is joy. And contrary to her husband, she's discerning. She's not a fool, she's discerning. She's sharp thinking and beautiful. She's quite the catch. 
And so here are these two we're being introduced to. And then in verse 4, we pick up the story that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, why does that matter? It matters because in those days, the shearing of the sheep was a huge festival. Whenever a, a shepherd or a herd owner would go into the season of shearing, they would invite everyone who was involved in their work, everyone who was a part of one of his hired hands, all a part of his farm and his land. He'd invite everybody in, and they would have this great festival. The shearing of the sheep wasn't just a job. It was a celebration, and it was a festivity. So David, he's in the wilderness, and he hears that, that Nabal is shearing his sheep. And usually with this kind of celebration, everyone would be invited. So in verse 5, David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And so the picture here of why the, the shearing would matter to David is that David and all of his men have been pulling security duty for Nabal and all of his shepherds and all of his sheep out in the wilderness. They've been providing protection to Nabal and his flocks and his shepherds. So now that he hears that the shearing has begun, it will be natural for David to gently remind Nabal how they have served. In fact, David goes as far as to say, we don't even have to attend the party. We'll just receive whatever you have to spare. And so as you read this, don't, don't read it like a shakedown on David's part. David's not saying, you know, I don't want to have to find out what's going to happen to those sheep if you don't invite us to the party and give us something to eat, you know. It's not a shakedown. That's not what's happening here. And David is just gently reminding Nabal here of the services that he's provided now that festival season has come. And so in verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, obviously, he's heard of David because he wouldn't know to say who is the son of Jesse if he hadn't heard who David was. So it's not like he's ignorant of David. Nabal's saying, who does David think he is? Listen to what he says. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. That's a little subtle dig at what he's heard about David and Saul, isn't it? David's been in the service of Saul, and David has broken away from Saul. We know because Saul's been trying to kill him. But Nabal said, I've been hearing a lot about servants who've been breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Nabal's response is a decisive rejection of David. And who does this David think he is? But it's also a, a very clear exposure of Nabal's heart. Did you hear him? It's my bread. It's my water. It's my meat that I killed for myself and 
my shearers. That is utter self-centeredness. And it's the height of foolishness. It's what his name actually means. He has just roundly insulted the honor of the man who has been protecting all of his shepherds and sheep who is carrying around Goliath's sword. The one of whom the women in the entire nation sang songs about his military prowess. Nabal's an idiot. Foolish and self-centered idiot. And David's response is quick and his response is vivid. Look at verse 13. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. See any repetition there? Any word jump off the page right there? Sword, sword, sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. David is ready to rain down destruction on a farmer. It's a little bit of overkill, isn't it? It's like taking a mallet to a fortune cookie. It's a little too much, right? You can just crack that thing open and get it, right? 400 armed men heading down to Nabal. Skip down for a second to verse 21. We'll come back, I promise, but I want you to hear this. This is David's response. Now, now listen to what's rising in David and coming out of David. Verse 21. Now, David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good? God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. This is the same David whose conscience kept him from taking off Saul's head in the cave when he had the chance. The same David whose conscience tore at him even after he cut the corner of Saul's robe. Here, David is sounding more Saul-like than we've ever seen David sound before. He sounds just like Saul did when Saul ordered the high priest and all the priests in the entire city of Nob to be destroyed simply for helping David. David, the king that has now been anointed but not yet appointed, is sounding a lot like a king of the nations. Outrage has overwhelmed David at the injustice of being slighted. Slighted for not getting what he thinks is his. Slighted for not getting what he thinks he deserves. Slighted for not being treated with the respect he thinks he deserves. David has been overcome by outrage. Have you ever wondered why some temptations are easier to walk away from than others. You know, as I thought about it this week, and you think about chapters 24, 25, and 26, all as the unit that they are, and you, you think about the temptations in 24 and 26 that David had right in front of him to take out retribution, to pay back Saul for all the injustice 
for all the mistreatment, the opportunity he had right in front of him, and he didn't do it, right? To put his hand to the Lord's anointed, to take Saul's life. That, and that was just too big. It was a little bit easier to resist that, maybe. Easier to resist than pouring out his outrage on this self-consumed farmer. This man so insulting and so wretched that David doesn't even seem to bat an eye at the temptation to destroy him. He's so overwhelmed here that we don't see any impulse in David, at least in the story, to even consider the consequences or the outcome or the action that he's now driven to take. He's overcome by the temptation for retribution. You know, in this moment in David's life, in this moment in the story, it's a reminder to you and I that we have to be on guard against our flesh at all times. Just like the Lord reminded Cain when he said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It, it desires to overtake you. David seems to be being overtaken right now and overcome. But while David is being swept away by his sinful desire for retribution, something else is happening in the story that we haven't seen yet. God is actually setting up a dam to block the flow of David's rage. Look back at verse 14. One of the young men, speaking of one of Nabal's young men, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields. As long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. I mean, what does a wall do when you're in danger? It puts itself between you and harm's way. That's what a wall does. It gets in between you and danger. And that's what this young servant is saying to Abigail. David's men put themselves between danger and us to protect us the whole while that we were out there. And so in verse 17, he says, Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one can't even speak to him. I mean, that's his reputation. Those who work with him and those who work for him know him this way. I can't talk to him. He's so foolish, so worthless, so self-centered, so underhanded, I can't even talk to him. Now, read it like a human. If we have this picture of the kind of man that Nabal is, it's not a stretch to imagine that Abigail hasn't had the best marriage. And now she gets word that David, the man who has slayed tens of thousands, the man who is carrying Goliath's sword on his hip, the man of whom maybe she's caught wind the Lord has actually anointed is coming to take care of this worthless man. 
If it were you, what would your response be? Would you look at the servant and say, well, you know, give me a couple days to pray on that. Let me consider what I might do. I don't have a peace about what the Lord wants me to do right now. Let's just see what happens. That's not what Abigail does. This is the centerpiece of the whole story. Listen to this, verse 18. She hears this, and it says, then. Not later, not in a day or two, not after a week, not after watching and waiting and seeing what's going to unfold. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Friends, that's not disloyalty. That's discernment in action. Abigail's a boss. She is headed out on a rescue mission to save her husband from his own foolishness. And on a rescue mission, as we'll see, to save the king from his foolishness. And so in verse 20, as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Just imagine that in your head. Abigail's coming down the mountain with the donkeys and all of these gifts that have gone before her, right? They're ahead of her and she's coming down the mountain, they're down low, and David's coming down the other side of the mountain in full rage. We know what he's like. His horses aren't on a trot. They're on a gallop. And there's 400 of them, and they are armed, and they are headed straight towards her. If you were her, what would you do in that moment? Abigail shows no signs of intimidation. Look at what it says. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. This is the same thing that David did before Saul. It's the same thing her husband should have done with David. It's simply a gesture of taking the lower place, the humble place. But even more amazing than that, just listen to what she says. This is staggering. Verse 24. She fell at David's feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Do do you hear that? Please let the guilt be on me. She did not look at David and hold up her hands and say, hold on. I'm so sorry you took offense at my husband's behavior, you little snowflake. She didn't put the problem back on David. No, Abigail is here acting as an advocate for her husband, a mediator between her, between Nabal and David. She is a wall between the coming judgment and danger that resided in David and his men towards her husband. 
In verse 25, she said, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Fool, Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. I didn't know that your men came. I wasn't aware of what was going on. But having said that, give me your ear for just another minute. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from the blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. What a statement. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. There's a couple of things you've got to catch in this. First, you don't know it yet unless you've read ahead in the story or you've read through these narratives and the history so far. But Abigail is speaking prophetically to David here. When Abigail says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. This is the first time that phrase is mentioned in the story, but it's not the last. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it said to David that your house and kingdom shall be made sure before me, says the Lord. You see, in the name of the Lord, whom you can entrust your life to, who's committed to you, who is making your house sure forever, the one who has called you, the one who has anointed you, the one who is going to appoint you, I get where you're going. I get what God is doing. And in the name of him who has called you, please forgive me. It's amazing. But she's not done. Verse 30, she says, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. Real clear right there, right? My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Listen, David. God is going to make you king. And you do not want to establish your kingdom with the blood of this fool on your hands. That's not what you want. What a speech. What a woman. It's a brilliant example of a loving and godly confrontation. Did you hear in her moment with David the the very subtle reproof as she reasoned with David for a different path, a different course of action? 
See, this is just the flip side of what we saw with Jonathan. If you remember when Jonathan came to meet David, when David was at his lowest point and Jonathan snuck away to talk to him, and there was that great moment where he said, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord, reminding David of who God is and what God has done and what God has promised, strengthening his hand in, in God. This is just the flip side of the same coin. She's strengthening David in the Lord as well. She's confronting the course of his actions and encouraging him and reminding him of God's promises to him. What a gift. Friends, this is the the gift we talk about around here of gracious accountability. This is a privilege and a responsibility that we have towards one another in the Lord. Remember, if anyone is caught up, we should restore them in gentleness. There's a privilege and a responsibility we have, even in the moments when we're overwhelmed, friends and people and loved ones are overwhelmed like David is here, overwhelmed in his own outrage at the slight that he has received. Why it was too big of a thing for him to recognize taking Saul's life and putting his hand to the Lord's anointed and why it was okay in his heart and his mind in this moment to be overwhelmed with the same desire for retribution and take it out on this man, we'll find out one day. But she stepped in and she reminded him in that moment in the face of all the danger that David posed to her house, she reminded him of who the Lord is who he is in God's working. You don't want to take this path, David. But you realize in those moments, it it takes two to tango, right? If we're really honest, we look at what Abigail has done here in this moment and we recognize all the reasons why we so quickly shy away from entering into moments the way that Abigail has why we can see friends and loved ones acting and speaking and behaving in ways that are taking them down a very destructive path. Maybe for fear of how they'll think of us, for fear of what they'll say, for fear of what it might cause the relationship. Who knows what the list is? We, we step back and observe and hope that something or someone happens to intervene or if it doesn't, maybe at some point they'll see, have seen the error of their way facing the natural consequences of their action and something will happen. We, we just stay back. But here in this moment, David has a role to play in seeing the story change directions. Abigail was brave and she spoke courageously and lovingly to David. But how will the mighty David respond? I mean, you know what it is if you just are honest with yourself to feel so caught up in the emotion like that. I mean, think of those moments when you've just been overwhelmed by the emotion. Whatever it might be. Jealousy, envy, anger, whatever. And someone tries to come to you to help you see it. You know what it is to feel that way and to hear them, right? How is David going to respond? Well, look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. What's happening right now, Abigail? 
It might be discerning and wise in your eyes when you've realized what my intentions were towards your husband based on what he did to me. But no, God's done this thing. God has actually sent you to me this day. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one man. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. The best of them don't last forever. God's story continues to go on, and even the best of them that do remain aren't perfect. But the Lord never ceases to intervene in surprising ways. Abigail's plea broke through David's heart. And David held his men back from Saul. And now Abigail is holding David back from revenge. Vengeance belongs to God, David, not you. And here's the thing we'll see over and over again with David. There's one thing about him that's so astounding. and It's simply this. When he's confronted with God's word, he generally tends to hear it. And he's quick to humble himself under it and repent of whatever sin is being exposed. He seems to be just as quick to humble himself under God's word in repentance as he is quick to give in to temptation and sin. As we've seen in the story so far, Saul was confronted with God's word numerous times and He hardened his heart and he walked away. And here, even in this chapter, David was having a Saul-like response to Nabal. But when confronted by the truth of who God is and what God is doing, David relents. It's a pattern we're going to see over and over in his life. David is a tremendous sinner. He's an even more tremendous repenter. We have a great record of it in the Psalms. And as we read the story even now in light of the world in which we live, we we have to acknowledge that in some sense, this is the best that we can hope for in a leader. It's natural to understand David's temptation to want to defend his honor. It's natural for David as a leader of a warrior group of men preparing to assume the throne of a kingdom that's going to come It's natural to understand how he might want to send a strong message as to how you're not supposed to treat him. Yet what's most important is how quick David is to repent. Unlike Nabal, the fool, David is no fool who would refuse correction. And as you consider chapter 25 this week and go back and and reread it and talk about it, I want you to consider just how quick You are to sin. Do you realize, how well do you know, just how quick you are to give in to the temptation to sin like David is? But the question we have to consider is, 
are we as quick as David is to repent? To surrender our hearts to God's gracious word. When David was confronted with the truth, he didn't claim his victimhood. You don't know how poorly he's treating me. Everywhere I go, at every turn, he's after me. He's thrown his spear at him multiple times. And now here's this man who he's worked for, who he's protected, who he's served, he hasn't been paid for, who's now refusing him the respect he thinks he deserves because he is the anointed king and he doesn't give him what he thinks he deserves because he's protected his sheep. No, the Lord sent you here to save me from the blood guilt I was about to endure. Thank you. Another chapter in David's life. Amazing things for us to remember. The good guys, just like Samuel, they can't last forever. And even the best of them who are still here, they aren't perfect. In fact, you'll see if you keep reading the chapter, we won't finish it out this morning, but if you keep reading the chapter, you'll see that even after God delivers his judgment to Nabal, David takes Abigail as his wife because Saul had taken his daughter, who was David's wife, and given her to someone else while David was on the run. But as he's leaving town, David takes someone else for his wife too. He starts taking multiple wives for himself. But as we've seen even in this chapter, and we'll see as the story keeps going, the Lord never stops intervening in unforeseen ways using even the most surprising of people to help us to see our sin and to call us back graciously to repentance. And it reminds us as we read the chapter and we listen to David and we listen to Abigail that it's always the Lord ultimately who is the hero of the story. Did you hear them as they talked to each other over and over again? It was the Lord's doing in this. It's the Lord who has called you. It's the Lord who has protected you. It's the Lord who sent you. It's the Lord who's done this. It's God who ultimately has intervened for his glory and David's good, who is always the real hero here in the story. And so as you go back and consider chapter 25, and once again David's imperfection jumps off the page, realize that David's imperfection is simply exposing the need for someone and something even greater. The one God's people have been waiting for ever since Genesis chapter 3. This story and this episode in David's life reminds us once again of how desperately we all need Jesus. In the end, yes, David resisted the temptation to take revenge on his enemies. And in that moment, David is pointing us forward to our King and our Lord. He was simply a foretaste of the godly suffering and the confident trust in God that we ultimately see in Jesus' life and Jesus' death on the cross. And we're reminded in the cross of Jesus that the cross isn't simply a payment for our sin, but it's a pathway for our lives. And this morning, as we bring our time in God's Word to a close, I want you to hear the Gracious words of the Lord to us through Peter in the New Testament. 
He wrote to the church and he says, this is a gracious thing when you and I, being mindful of God, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Therefore, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your mind for action. And being sober-minded, let us set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, David's life in these moments is all too relatable if we allow ourselves to just listen. Lord, let this chapter of his story be a reminder of just how desperately we need you one greater than David, one who took the consequences for all of our sin and suffered the judgment that we deserve for our sin so that through your grace, by faith and confidence in him, we might receive his righteousness and his perfection. God, help us to see our ongoing need for you and help us to see even in the most overwhelming of times all that you have done for us and how you continue to work in us by your Holy Spirit to be able to respond to moments of anger and envy and the irrationality of being overcome and outraged in those moments how we can still act in accordance with your word as your Holy Spirit continues to work in us all that is necessary to continue to conform us into the image and likeness of your Son. Lord, help us as a people to love one another enough to risk the discomfort, to risk whatever it is we might fear the most in the moment, but to love one another enough to be like Abigail, to step in and to graciously and honestly and and helpfully encourage each other to see the truth that's in front of us. To see the consequences even of of our giving in to our desires and our giving in to our emotions and giving in to the moment, whatever it might be. Lord, let us be people that love one another enough to risk whatever it is we fear in those moments to provide a gracious accountability So together, like David and like Abigail, we as your people can say it's the Lord who's done this. It's the Lord who's given you to me. We thank you for the the privilege and the responsibility that we have in in one another's lives to, to play this role, to love this way. And so Lord, we ask for all that that stands in the way of our hearts in these moments, Lord, that you would that you would destroy it, and that our confidence in you would be greater. Lord, we ask this in the name of our King and our Lord, for his glory and for our joy. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.